Our study is called Jerusalem Meets Rome and Finds Babylon, a study in church purity. This started from a question I had, and, and that was, when I read the New Testament and I look at what Jesus was doing and I see where we are today, I'm asking where, what made all this change? What made all this transition? When I look at <clears throat> what I've seen with mainline denominations, <clears throat> where did vestments come from? Where did the, the idea of wearing a robe come from? Where did the Lord's table become a centerpiece of a ritual? Where, where did that happen? And then what changed so that among some churches, preaching is what the number one thing is. The whole service is wrapped around uh, songs and then preaching. Where did that change? Because I don't. Was that what Jesus was doing? <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, I started asking that question, and then I uh, was reviewing church history, and I realized, boy, the church got involved in some pretty nasty things throughout church history. Um, you know, when you when you look at the conquest that took place from fourteen, let's just say around fifty two, fifty three. Uh, all the way through till the last of the thing. Well, some some uh, places didn't get their freedom until the uh, 1990s, <clears throat> some situation. How did the church get involved in that? And some of the things that I saw was that uh, churches handled schools that um, the children were often found abused. Um you, you hear a lot more about it from Canadian schools because Canada uh, started what was called a Truth and Reconciliation Council. And they went around trying to figure out what happened at the indigenous schools. And it was tragic. It was tragic. The United States so far has not wanted to do that. They had the same kind of situation, same kind of schools, same things they were trying to do. Uh, that was... Um, uh, that was, a, I think, the statement made by one of the schools in Pennsylvania was they would have to kill the Indian to save the man. And the things that happened to young Native Americans and by, by the church's hand, uh, that was just one of those things you just scratch your head and said, how did we do that? Where, where did we get the idea that that's what Jesus wanted us to do? with P- It just it staggered my imagination when I saw what the history of the church was. Matter of fact, there for a while, it, it cost me a lot. I, I cried almost all the time just trying to figure out what happened. How do people who claim the Lord Jesus Christ get into these kinds of situations where they're, uh, you know, they'd rather just go ahead and kill and enslave if the people are not going to follow the commands of, of the church? How did that happen? So, that caused me to go back and look and say, at what point did the church become Babylonish? And to do that, I want you to go back. Let's, let's talk about what it means to be Babylonish, because I, I want to make sure. I, I am not uh, talking about, if anybody ever read the um, Two Babylons by Bishop Hislop? It's a, a book that was very popular for a long time. It was called... Uh, <clears throat> The Two Babylons, written by an uh, Anglican bishop. And what he was attempting to do with this was to prove why the Anglican church had purified the Roman Catholic church. The Anglican church 
if you remember just a little bit of church history, the Anglican Church was the Roman Catholic Church until Henry VIII wanted a son. And when his wives were only giving him daughters, Henry VIII wanted a divorce. And the Pope said, no, you can't have a divorce. Marriage is for life. Well, Henry VIII said, that's not going to work. So he found it easier just to kill his wives. So he killed some of his wives so he could, but he wasn't getting the son that he wanted. So he declared independence from the Roman Catholic Church and declared the bishop in the, to be the bishop of the church, and he made himself the head of the church. That's the Anglican Church. Okay. It's the Roman Catholic Church with the king of England as, or the, whatever the monarch of England is at the time, that's the one that's the head of the church. So uh, in, in America, the Anglican church is called the Episcopal church. All right? So there, that's the same thing. The rituals remain the same. That didn't change. Vestments remain the same. Who you answered to did change, which makes you ask the question, why did they start answering to somebody? Where did it arise that the Pope, or that there is such a person as the Pope? He was known as the Ponte, Pontifex Maximus. Where did that come from? Well, that's a Latin word that really comes out of the Roman Empire itself. So at what point did the church become identical with the Roman Empire? How did those kind of things happen? which made me back up and keep, and keep asking questions. I know that some of that happened in the 4th century, but how did they get there from being a persecuted group to being not only the legal group, but the number one religion in the Roman Empire? How did that happen? Where the Roman emperor was the head of the church. How did those things happen? And why does it look so Babylonish? So, uh, if you will, remember with me the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. Everybody remember, remember that? We've studied that several times. But Nebuchadnezzar saw a vision in which there was a, an image that stood up. And the image had a golden head. And then the, the, the thorax was a, a, a silver thorax. So you see great value, a little bit lesser value, but nonetheless, then it became bronze. So that's even less value. So you got what's a bronze that is an alloy between what uh, copper and tin, something, something like that. But anyway, it's it's very shiny, very durable. It's quite a quite a strong metal. Uh, obviously, gold is soft and silver is soft, so they're not as strong a metal as the bronze is. But from the bronze came these iron legs, two iron legs that came down into iron feet that were mixed with ceramic clay. The, the ceramic clay and the iron didn't mix well. They, they can't adhere to each other. Well, the explanation that Daniel gave to us was the head, that golden head, is Babylon. So the whole image is really about Babylon. You, you see where I'm coming from? It's Babylon and then what was going to happen to that same kingdom. Remember, the geography only changed a little bit. They just kept adding geography to it. But it's still the same Mideast deal. Okay, So it was the Babylonian Empire, then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Grecian Empire, then the Roman Empire. And no more empires were listed after that. 
So the Roman Empire was the last one that was going to be. And it divided into two, it had two legs and it had two parts to it, Western Kingdom and the Eastern Kingdom. The Western Kingdom is the one we know most about. The Eastern Kingdom was ultimately was taken over by the Ottoman Greeks, and that became the, or I'm sorry, the Ottoman Turks, and they they created the Ottoman Empire, which was a Muslim empire that existed until um, 1918, 1914, 18, somewhere in there. It, at the end of World War One, uh, it was over. Because the Turks had allied themselves with the Germans and the Austrians, and that, that was a mistake for them. They lost the war, so the Turks lost all their empire. And the British and French got together and decided they would divide it up the way they wanted it to. So instead of giving it to the Arabs who assisted in that, they gave it up to themselves. So with Britain and France owning that land, they gave the land to Israel in 1948, and that's how Israel got to be, uh, that got to have a nation. I think that's, that's, I realize that's probably just history that you know, but the point I was getting to was this. All these empires, all they did, the golden head, it had so much geography. The Medes and the Persians added a little more geography to it. Alexander the Great, a Grecian, adds even more territory to it. And then the Romans, going all the way from Italy, took over everything Greece had, and they have an empire that really essentially went from the middle of Europe all the way over into India. So they had a lot of territory they were covering, and they they tried to uh, gain as much as they could. But that empire was always the Babylonian empire. So when we get to... um, Revelation 17, just for a moment. <clears throat> I want you to go back there with me just for a moment. And let's, take, <clears throat> let's take a look at this and just see. It says in here, the verse 17, 17, 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So by, by saying it's a harlot that sits on many waters, she's worldwide. Uh, this is this is someone who is a worldwide person sitting on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and uh, ten horns. So the beast has seven heads, ten horns. That is the 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 kingdoms of the earth that Babylon was the one manipulating. All right? So the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So here is uh, someone who he, he's just staggered by what he's seeing. This is the philosophy of all the conquests of all the kings of the earth. If, if you remember Acts chapter 17, he said, I'm dividing the lands up among the 70 nations. Okay? So everybody was going to have their own boundary, their own land. They would rise and fall according to God's power. That was each one of theirs. 
and each one of them had a God, uh, an Elohim, that was over them. When they began to conquer each other, what's causing that? He says it was Babylon. That this philosophy of having what somebody else has, this philosophy of being richer than you ought to be, this philosophy of being the dominant person was something that was taking over all those nations. And it was Babylon that was giving that, that influence to them. So all the kings have been, all the kings of the world uh, have been influenced by this philosophy of if you have it and I want it, let's fight about it. And if I can beat you, I get to have what you have. And that was, in essence, what was going on all the time. That's what conquest is about. You see something that you want, it makes you richer. And that's what was going on with these kingdoms. Every, every time they conquered something else, it just made them richer. And every time they conquered something, they would turn all those people into either slaves uh, or they sold them off. Uh, the slavery was... Very, very common. That's what everybody did. It was uh, trafficking souls. They sold people. So every time there was a conquest, they took the people they conquered and said, you're working for us now. You have all the menial jobs that we, we'd done before. You're going to do all those things. That's Babylon. You, you see where I'm at? So that's Babylon. So when, when I say the church finds Babylon, the church starts out in Jerusalem, and it starts to encounter, uh, the, it's carrying the gospel every place, and now Jewish people are starting to trust the gospel, and then some, Jew, some Gentile people start to trust the gospel. Well, once it gets out of Jerusalem, once it gets out of Israel, it's not simply a, an Israeli way of doing things. Once it gets into Turkey, or Asia Minor, as it's called at that time, now it's facing more than just Jewish world. It's facing the Greco-Roman world. And the Greco-Roman world was given over to Babylon. You follow where I'm at? That's, that's, that whole philosophy of the Greco-Roman world was Babylonish. So you're having the, the church at Jerusalem meeting up with Roman Empire. As they're meeting up with the Roman Empire, the church has got to decide, what do we keep that Jesus taught us? And what do we keep that the culture has? How, how do we do all that? What's the way for us to do it? Are we creating a counterculture? What, what exactly are we doing? When we, go, when we take the gospel someplace, we're bringing freedom to people. We're bringing good news to people. We're bringing liberation to people. Liberation from what? Well, we know it's from sin. But we also know, gang, that when you are trusting Jesus Christ, there are things in your life that change from the culture you've been used to living in. If you've been used to living in a culture that has just been wild and crazy, you're, you're understanding after a while, I can't keep living like that. I, I want to follow Jesus, so I'm, I'm not going to be this wild and crazy guy anymore. Peter talks about that in First uh, Peter chapter uh, 4. He said... They're, they get so puzzled by you, where you used to get involved with all the riotous living they were in, and now you won't, and they're wondering, what's the matter with you? What changed about you? Well, you, you brought Jesus into your life. Now with Jesus into your life, that's changing that culture. Well, does that culture going to change willingly? Uh, listen, there's going to be some battles there. 
as you as you bring a non-idolatrous religion into an idolatrous culture, you got to know there's going to be friction. Well, when that friction happens, what part does the church follow and what part of the church picks up from the culture? So what I wanted to do was share with you that as they hit the Roman culture, after a while, the Babylonish empire that's in the Roman culture started showing up. And by 400, well, I should say by the 4th century, by the time Constantine and the guy that followed him, I can't remember now who that was, by the time they get it, uh, they're, they're altering the church. They're changing its structure. Its, its structure now is becoming the bishops are more like the senators in the Congress, uh, the, the Roman Republic. They're more like political officers of the Roman Empire. And they're making decisions now as a collective that they had not done before. Before, it was local churches. You had a church at Ephesus. You had a church in the whole region of Galatia. Galatia is not a city. That's a, an area. So you had a bunch of churches in Galatia. You had a church at Ephesus. You had a church at Thessalonica. Those were all local churches living what the Holy Spirit was teaching them to live. He was not creating a worldwide church. What Constantine and the man who followed him did was to create Christendom, an, an empire for Christ. That was Babylonish. You follow where I'm coming from? It's got Christ's name all over it. But you can't have an empire for Christ without Christ being the one that's on the throne. So what they had to do was say, since Christ can't be here on the throne, someone will have to be in his place. So the most likely one to be in Christ's place, since he can't be here, is the Pontifex Maximus, is the greatest bishop of all. Who should be the greatest bishop of all but the bishop of Rome? So for whatever reason, a group of those bishops all decided they would submit themselves to the Bishop of Rome, and they would create for themselves a college of bishops. Now, that whole structure is completely Roman. I hope to be able to show you that tonight, but um, let's, let's take a look at this. What is meant by Babylon? Babylon symbolizes the philosophy of society without creator God or the most high God. It's the creation of a utopia based on conquest, theft, and human destruction or captivity, and seeing it all as a divine blessing. Um, there were many times when somebody would conquer something, and they would declare how they had conquered in the name of their God. I don't know if you, if you remember a, a showdown that came as Assyria worked its way into Israel, and they took over the ten tribes. Then they decided they'd go march on Jerusalem. So they sent this letter to Jerusalem, and they read it in Hebrew. So here are all, all these people in Jerusalem listening to the Rabshakeh, or whatever his name was, the, the, the general for the conquering army, as he stood up and said, uh, here's what his majesty says. Surrender. Surrender today, or you're going to be eating your children. 
Surrender today or you're going to eat all your uh, livestock. Surrender today or you're going to be corpses. You will be skeletons. And we'll see to it that you get, get, get to be that. And, you know, the king and everybody's going, shh, shh, shh. Just read in Aramaic. Read it. We all know Aramaic here. Don't read it in Hebrew. They said, I'm going to read it in Hebrew so the people will know what they're getting. We're going to kill you all. We're going to destroy you. You are going to starve to death in here. We're going to shut off everything so that nothing gets into your city. Okay? And then he said, what about the gods of such and such city? Where are they? Our God took him down. What about the gods of such and such? Where are they? Our God destroyed them. Do you really think this punky little Yahweh can do anything? Do you think he can stand before us? Are you kidding? We're a conquering army. We've conquered everything we've gone through. Do you, you hear what I'm saying? That it was, they were conquering in the name of their God. So something that's Babylonish is conquering in the name of a false God. Does that make sense to you? Or a perversion of the one true God. Babylon is a society made for elites by using the rest of the population to create their wealth. It gives the population the toys or provisions they need to be stupidly happy. It is false security. So all they have to do is make the people work for the elites, make the people work and give them their thing, and then give them toys they like. With the Romans, it was give the people games. Give the people bread, give them the, something to, to something they'll enjoy, keep them occupied with that, and then just tax the, the life out of them. That's what people did, okay? As long as you got your games, as long as you got those distractions, as long as you got the internet, as long as you got TV or whatever it is, then just be stupidly happy. We'll just keep taxing your brain away, all right? I think most of us know by now that the first half of the year, we have, we have paid taxes enough that that first half of the year went to the government. The second half of the year is what we get to keep. Okay? And that's the way they did it. All right? Babylon is a religious system of the worship of the creature or the created, especially to the neglect of God and his people. That's Romans chapter 1. That's all it is. Romans chapter 1 is just the, they love the creature and the creator, or the, not the creator, they love the creature and the things created, but not the creator. All right. Letter D, Babylon is the mother of all harlots or covenant-breaking prostitution for pleasure and dominance. That's what a harlot does. Uh, it breaks a covenant. There was a covenant that God made with the man and the woman. That, that was, they were for each other. When you start act, talking about prostitution, you've now broken the covenant of man for each other, and you're taking on someone who doesn't belong to you, that is not made for you. All right? And Babylon is ritualized worship using sorcery, manipulation, intimidation, and supernatural powers administered, administrated, administered through shaman, male or female, to reach spiritual heights. Now, this one I'm seeing going on so much more today. Um, are you familiar with a name, um, Joe Rogan? Joe Rogan has the, the most popular podcast in the world. Uh, and he has just about anybody on he wants to talk to. And it's not an, a 10-minute interview or half-an-hour interview. No, this is three hours. 
If he wants to talk to somebody for three hours, five hours, whatever he wants to talk to him, that's what he does. But Joe Rogan um, champions the use of hallucinogens. Matter of fact, a lot of the uh, health gurus are championing the um, the use of hallucinogenic drugs. They're they're mind expanders. I'm I'm old enough to remember Timothy Leary. Uh, you you might remember Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary was a psychologist in the 1950s who had used um, what's it called the lysergic diethylmethyle acid to. Yeah, he used LSD on patients to help them get control of the stress. Like P, uh, P, um, PTSD folks, he would take them through uh, LSD and they would catch, uh, his conclusion was they were getting in touch with themselves and getting, getting real. And Timothy Leary tried to push that on America. They, they disqualified LSD, said, no, we don't think we ought to be using hallucinogens. Well, Timothy Leary pressed it. He said, what was it? Uh, tune in. No, turn on, tune in, drop out. That was the things he was telling people to do. So get these drugs, tune into who you are. So turn on, tune in, drop out. Get out of society because society is, is a mess. And he was pressing that pretty hard. And LSD got to be used by a lot of people during the 60s. And he was calling it a liberation drug something that helps you get in touch with yourself. Well, um, Carlos Castaneda, I think his name was, wrote the um, Don Carlos, I can't remember what it was, wrote a a series of books about um, a Yaqui Indian shaman that was teaching him how to use uh, peyote. And he would use his peyote, and it's all about the different things he hallucinated. Um, right now, mushrooms are, um, what do they call sabellum? I, sorry, I'm not real good at that. A, a hallucinogenic mushroom is being used right now to get in touch with where you need to go. And there are people traveling all the way to the Amazon jungle to be, um, I don't want to, treated by a shaman that lives in the jungle. And he gathers up all these plants and puts them all together, mixes it all up. And from the description of what people say, it makes people terribly sick. Um, you know, they, they just have all kinds of sickness comes to them for the first like 30 minutes, an hour. And then boom, they're off. And they, they're seeing all kinds of wonderful new worlds open to them. Um, that is sorcery. It's the word pharmakia. Pharmakia is what we get our word pharmacy from. And some have said, well, see, pharmakia, that's God condemning pharmacies. No, that is not God condemning pharmacies. Pharmacies are not necessarily working with sorcery. Sorcery is attached to the spiritual world. And honestly, there is a way to get into that spiritual world that's illegitimate. You know, Jesus said about people who are trying to get to heaven, and he said, you, all who entered before me were thieves and robbers. So there, what, there is a way to get into the spiritual world, and it is through drugs. It is through that type of sorcery, you know, because that does take you to a, a different world, a world that's, you say, well, no, it's just a created world. It's an imaginary world. 
Yeah. How would you know the difference between that and a spiritual world? You have to be, uh, well, my, my point is simply this. That's what Babylon was doing. Babylon uses that type of sorcery and manipulation to get people to do what they want them to do. So really, uh, well, I'll, I think I'll go off from there. I think you're getting my point there. Manipulation, intimidation, uh, supernatural powers. Listen, the Elohim, the supernatural powers, call them demons if you want, are looking for people who want to get into the spiritual world and have a supernatural experience. They're willing to show them a supernatural experience and take them to places they've never been before. Once a person goes to one of those places, they feel like they've had an experience that's beyond anything anyone else could ever have. And at that point, they feel like they have become supernaturally tuned in. And that is very controllable. All right? So anyway, that's, that's what Babylon represents. And then letter F, Babylon is perverting God's natural laws to provide protection and provision for the thieves who use her. All right? Now, I'm telling you, when we say that Jerusalem meets Rome and finds Babylon, Rome was the vehicle through whom um, Jerusalem, the believers in Christ, entered to find the Babylonish world. Rome is just one step. Remember, that that's the two legs of the, the statue, the image. Rome is just one of the entry points that you get into to find the Babylonian world. All right which is described by all those things I've given you there. When you hear people talking about building a utopia uh, and, and it doesn't include the Lord God, that's never going to be a utopia. That's going to be a dystopia. It's going to be a bad, bad thing. It's always going to be elites that get to run it. It's always going to be plebes and slaves that get to be used by them in that. That's Babylonish. Do you follow me? And that's why I said... How did the church get involved with some of that Native American stuff they did? Because that's what they did to the Native Americans. You know, they turned them into slaves. They turned them into, uh, well, I won't go into that. That's another story. Um, So let's take a look at what is the Greco-Roman world? How is it going to affect them? First of all, one of the biggest things about the Greco-Roman world was this military-centered, military-centered. It was the military that created the empire. And people really respected the Roman military. They, they were so well-ordered and did things so well. They, were, they conquered a lot of people. And the people they conquered often said, can we join your army? Can we be a part of your military? And they would, they would bring them in, sometimes having whole units that might be the conquered people. And they, they've made good use of those people. So they're the ones that created the empire, and frankly, they're the ones that maintained the empire's infrastructure. The ones who built the great Roman highways were the military. Because what, what he would do, they'd conquer some place, then they'd leave an occupying force right there. Then that occupying force's task was to make sure the roads coming into that road, that, that area, were all well done, that they were paved well, and that the people could travel those roads peacefully. So they were the police force for it, and they were the ones that kept the structure built. They built the bridges. They built it all. When they weren't fighting, they were building something. 
and that gave them a lot of prestige, okay? And I, I don't even have time to go into all the things that the military was divided into because there were several groups that you could be a part of, a very high class of military folk, probably what we would call general officers, very high class of them. Um, they, they had special clothing they wore, much, much like what you'd see in our military today. They had uniforms that they wore that set them apart. You had those that even became equestrians. They rode horses. They were part of the cavalry. There were different, different levels, just like there are in the military today. There's different levels of leadership that was in it. And each of those bought you something in that culture. If anybody saw you coming in and you had a certain level of uniform on, they knew to give you whatever uh, you were asking for. Um, and it, it, it worked that way all across. It was a very strong military structure. that They provided structure for every society they went to. Uh, wherever Rome went to conquer, they set up the structure for that society. They made it really, that gave them prestige, that gave them honor. They did all kinds of specialties, and there was uniform recognition every place. So the military was a very important part of the Roman Empire. Um, let's just think for a minute, how much emphasis does the military have in the New Testament? Uh, Paul's going to tell us this, that every good soldier gives himself wholeheartedly to his commanding officer and does not attach himself to things of the world, Second Timothy chapter 2. He's not going to give himself over to any, not entangle himself with the things of the world because he's going to be the fighter and a, and a ruler. What's he going to tell us about the spiritual warfare we're in? He's going to tell us how to dress and what's he going to use. The, the Roman soldier's uniform as a way to describe to you how you need to get dressed. Why did he know he could do that? So many people saw it all the time. That's what they recognized all the time. They knew what was going on with those. Paul was a tent maker. <clears throat> tent makers made tents for the military. That's the primary place that they did it. Paul watched a lot of things going on with the military, talked about order. One of the words he used all the time was submission. He used the word submission, and it was a military term that was used about uh, being in line with one another. So the military has a lot to do. Who's the first European saved? It's going to be a Roman legionnaire. Remember, the first Gentile that got saved was um, the, the legionnaire that uh, Peter went to visit. He didn't know why he's going to go visit him, but he tells him, and that guy trusts Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. Um, so military was important all throughout the New Testament. Uh, letter B, Rome and Greece both had a rigid social structure, and that provided recognizable hierarchical structure. You, there, they had names for every kind of level of citizenship there was. Uh, if you were of the higher senator level, you wore a purple sash. That identified you any place you went in public that you were a senator and were worthy of special honor. Then underneath the senator became, there was this, this guy, this guy, this guy, this guy, and they had a real hierarchy that was developed there. They had a hierarchy for citizenship. Uh, some citizens were born citizens. Uh, some, some families were family names that caused them to have special honors over others, such as freedmen. You have guys who became freedmen 
that they got they they had earned their liberty. Maybe it was through um, the military because you could earn your liberty through the military. But you you had a lot of ways that you could become. Uh, they had special names for uh, people who were made citizens because their city created a emperor's club. If you created an emperor's club in your city, then you could become citizens very easily. And they, uh, more about that in just a minute. They had a very strong division of labor with heavy emphasis on slavery as the engine of the economy. They knew that their whole economy was being driven by slavery. That was important and critical to them. I was reading one, and it talked about how at the Republic's government was meeting together, and they said um, one guy proposed a bill for the Republic that all slaves should dress the same. They wanted to have a slave uniform so that slaves could be easily recognized any place. The only argument that defeated it was if you give the slaves clothes, if you make them all wear a uniform, they'll see how many of them there really are. <laughs> and they know that there are more than of them than there are of us. They'll have a revolt and overthrow all of us. So they, they voted down the bill to give slaves a special uniform to wear. That's pretty cool. Why was it the Pharaoh wanted to kill the, the Israelis? Because they were growing in population more than the Egyptians were, and there were more of them than there were the Egyptians, they feared an uprising. They feared a revolt was going to take place once they figured out there's more of us than there are the Egyptians. Well, anyway, uh, there was division of citizenship levels and recognitions in this area. They had an honor and shame society as opposed to a guilt society. Christians and Jews live off of guilt. The, the Romans and Greeks lived off of honor and shame. There are things that we always do, they said. When we do this, we bring honor to our family. We bring honor to our club. We bring honor to our college. We bring honor to, and that was important to them, bringing honor to your family. When you didn't do it, you brought shame to your family, not guilt, shame. And, and you didn't feel guilt. You just recognized that you had shamed your family. You know, if you're, if you're always supposed to uh, uh, greet a senator with uh, your right hand and raised like so, and you don't do that, you brought shame to your family. You don't have to feel guilt about it, but you brought shame to your family, and the whole family makes you feel bad because you, you shamed the family. Whereas with us, we say, you broke the law. You broke God's law. You are guilty, and it's guilt that drives the, the whole matter of salvation. If you're guilty, you need to be saved from that guilt. So there was a difference in what was going on between those two societies. <clears throat> but I did notice this, that as more and more of the church became um, a part of the Roman culture, the more they decided to divide themselves out into hierarchies. Now we have the Bishop of Rome, the College of Cardinals, the bishops, the archbishops, the pastors. You follow what I'm saying? You are creating now a hierarchy modeled off the Roman hierarchy. That's how Rome is affecting us. And that's remember, that's what Jesus told us not to do. 
He said, if there's going to be a leader among you, let him be a servant of all. Not somebody that has a higher rank and is accepted more. James wrote, how I am ashamed of you because uh, a poor man comes into your say, you say, sit here on the floor. A rich man comes in, you number, you say, hey, wait a minute here, let me find you a good seat to sit on. Okay. He said, that's not what we're supposed to do. That's breaking the law. All right. Um, marriage and family. What about women in society? Women in society were actually pretty liberated. Uh, they had uh, quite a good deal of freedom. In the Roman society, they could divorce just as easily as the man could. In Jewish society, no, sir. The woman doesn't have a right to divorce. The husband can divorce her, but she cannot divorce him. Uh, but that's not the way it was in Roman and Greek society. The women had a lot more. But once a woman got married, she wasn't seen anymore. Her domain became, her castle became her home. And she was to take care of the children, and she was to take care of the house and make that house just as much a place of, of beauty and splendor and wonder and all that. That's what she was in, was in society. So we can say that Greek women were mostly hidden away in their home over which they had almost total rule with the property and the children. So they're going to the backside. Children and education. The, there was a statement made of this. We have our wives to have children. We have our handmaids to take care of our uh, uh, bodily needs. We have the prostitutes to take care of our sexual needs. And that's the way they felt about the whole world. Having children was not something they wanted to have a lot of. So there was attempted abortions or Frankly, what they got to do after a while, if you were having too many children, if you had more children than you wanted, exposure was the way it happened. You just simply give birth to the child and then put it on the, the, the garbage heap. And sometimes there'd be a, a lots of babies struggling on that garbage heap. When the Christians and Jews came into those areas, they were incensed by that. You know, they, they'd go and try to save all those children. You can kind of see where that's going to create a problem down the road with it. But uh, especially uh, there would be abortion or any other way to kill that child off unless, uh, especially girls, were just left to expose. Just leave them out where you can see them. Boys had to be adopted into the family. In other words, you could have a son, but he didn't have any inheritance rights. He didn't have any rights to the home. He had nothing until the father declared He's smart enough now to do it. And that required an adoption. That was really a legal paper. I'm, just, I'm declaring today that my son uh, Jerome is now a, a man, and he's, he can take over my home anytime he wants. Okay? Um, but the education, how many have heard of classical Christian education? Uh, what's it called? Classical, classical conversations. Um, that is the old Greek-Roman way of doing things. The kids were in three levels. You had a primary level at which you did mostly memorization, and you did a lot of memorization because memorization just helped your brain to, uh, to go on. The second, I think, was grammar and mathematics. And the third then was rhetoric, logic and rhetoric. So they had those, those three levels. Well, today, 
that's been revived again in what's called classical conversations and people are doing that same type of education. They see it as a very well-rounded education so that it's, it's really liberal arts. It's teaching a child a good viewpoint of what life was. Well, that was the educational system that they encountered. And you can see, listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 4. And he said, when we have our sons, that son is no different than a slave as long as he's in the household. And we put them under tutors and governors till the time appointed by the father. And when that appointed time is coming, he is now made heir of that home. That's the Greco-Roman way of doing things. So I can see that had an influence in Paul. Now, I'm going to take you back here. Paul was from where? Paul of Tarsus. Okay, He was Saul of Tarsus. Okay, That's not in Israel. So Paul being from Tarsus, he's trained in Jerusalem, but he's already a diaspora Greek. He's already a Greek that's Gentile, has a Gentile world he lives in. So Paul is already going to have a certain affinity for Gentiles, the Gentile world. So he picks up a lot of things from that, and you can see it influencing just as much in the New Testament as he's picking up things for the way people did things. Here's one I thought was quite interesting, letter E. The letter E is citizenship and social clubs. First of all, people had identity groups. No different from what we are today. Here are the, uh, we are the Galatian Roman citizens. Uh, we are the, and whatever your ethnic group was, you identify with them and you live with that particular group. But they also had uh, social groups. And that social group could be about anything. Be, it's kind of like what we do today. You, you, you could have a, a tennis club. You could have a ham radio club. Uh, you could have uh, the Historical Society Club. You could have an Emperor's Club, and you could form clubs. And they actually got legal status. Roman law provided legal status for those clubs. And it said who had to be the president. It kind of reminds me of what the Secretary of State requires for incorporated businesses. You've got to state who your board is. You've got to state who your officers are. You've got to state what your purpose is and that sort of thing. And that's the way the Roman law controlled that. And they had a variety of social groups. But they also had what was called the patron-client. Uh, how many of you have, um, any of you here a part of Patreon uh, podcasts where you, you can become a Patreon sponsor? A lot of people don't like to put their stuff on you, uh, YouTube because YouTube's got so many rules and stuff to follow. So they moved to Patreon. And Patreon is a patron-client society. In other words, you, you pay so much to be a part of that podcast uh, so that you get special materials given to you. you if, if, that, if that person's got a, a podcast on YouTube, you get to see some things. But if you join Patreon and give $5 a month to this, then they provide for you special PDFs on how to do this and how to do that. Here's special little things here. So you become a member. You're actually now a client to the patron. You're, you're, you're purchasing services. So that's, 
That's what was going on, and Rome had a lot of those. Uh, matter of fact, I was surprised to find that the New Testament speaks of one of those people doing just exactly that. It was Phoebe, who was the deacon that served the church in Sincrea. She was called a patroness, give her what she needs so she can meet the needs of all the other people. It's, it's pretty neat. I, I can see that it's, it was used again and again. But evangelism would work well because friendship was such an important thing to them. So if you, were a, you had a friend and you both were in the social club, it could be that the whole, let's say you're, you're in a ham radio club, the whole ham radio club is going to join. So everybody became now a part of the evangelism, which helped me understand households. You know, because uh, when um, Cornelius got saved, so did his whole household. The whole household turned to him. Uh, when the Philippian jailer got saved, the whole household got saved. Well, that wouldn't be unusual for the Roman Greek culture. They did things as a group, not just as individuals. We're more individualistic. You know, I'm, I'll decide whether I want to follow Jesus or not. Not I'm going to do it as a group. All right. um, okay. Let me go on to letter F. Um, oh, I, I, one more thing. The social clubs were structured to easily fit the practice that Jesus commanded his disciples to practice. Those social clubs really, when you joined a social club, you were to love all the members in the club equally. Uh, you, you were not permitted to have arguments that you didn't settle. If you had any kind of arguments, they had to be settled. That's all a part of the club. So if you're, if you're seeing where I'm coming from, that made what Jesus taught an easy thing to adopt. They just now saw the church as a Christ club. So they're joining the Christ club. And now everybody in there knows they're supposed to love each other. They're not supposed to argue with each other. They're supposed to do all the, So they would, they would serve each other. So just the church became a Christ club. Okay. Roman law. Roman law was strict enough that it provided all kinds of structure. Uh, and that, that worked very well. If you remember, Paul used Roman law several times to, to uh, save his life, to save a lot of things that were going on. Letter G, religions. The gods. Uh, the, the Romans' gods were a little more primitive than the Greek gods. The Greek gods were sophisticated characters. They were hum, like humans, but they were superhumans. And they, they did all kinds of things. They were responsible for keeping balance in the whole wide world and all that stuff, and they did a lot of strange little exploits. But um, the Roman gods were not like that. They were kind of really... Um, I'll just call them primitive. They, they, they were still real pagan-like. And so when the Romans conquered the Greeks, they said, you know, your gods are pretty sharp. We, we like your gods. Is it okay if we adopt your gods? They said, yeah. Do we have to call them by those names? So Zeus became Jupiter, and Ares became, um, I don't know, uh, Mars, and another one came Mercury and that sort of thing. So they just adopted the same names or the same gods. They just gave them their own names. Now, there's some of the gods they, they, they brought on. Now, finally, they just dumped because they didn't have a good purpose for that God anymore. It didn't match with what the Greeks were doing, so they just got rid of that God. All right? But you had this pantheon of gods, and that's going to affect 
uh, the, the church in and of itself, because you, you're seeing now the church having to ask itself, okay, this is what their gods are like. How is Yahweh different than that? What's, how is the Lord different from that? And sometimes Yahweh would start taking on some of the characteristics of one of their gods. And you'd have somebody say, whoa, 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 whoa. No, that's not the way Yahweh is at all. And they'd have some fights about what Yahweh really do. I should say arguments about what Yahweh was really like. Because he wasn't like the Romans. He wasn't like the Greeks. He wasn't like any of that. All right? But something that they did do were strong rituals. And this is where I began to understand that's what happened to the Roman church. They were strong about rituals. There was one ritual they would do every time, and that one ritual they would do, whatever the ritual was, pleased their God. didn't depend on which God it was. They didn't think of any of the gods as being more important than the other gods. So if you're having a ceremony for Diana, and the thing that Diana really loves more than anything else is um, good dairy milk. She loves dairy milk, and there's a special way you have to do that. You have to add special ingredients to it that, that causes Diana to really get happy. You know, she really appreciates what she gets to have there. So that ritual is what you would do. And once you did that ritual and you celebrated with a meal together and you had some special offering and sacrifice that you ate together, then I began to see, oh, yeah. Can you see how that Roman influence then caused us now to say, well, let's make the Lord's table then a separate ritual. And they did make it into a separate ritual all its own, doing some pretty strange work. Uh, The priest has the power to call Jesus to come down from heaven and to inhabit the bread and the wine so that when people eat it, they are eating literally the body and blood of Christ. That was a ritual that was performed. Christ is pleased with that. The people are pleased with that. Then they'd have a meal together. That's just like what would go on in some of the Roman religious ceremonies. Um, let's see. The last, I'm going to say, the philosophers. They took on the role of prophets, priests. The philosophers became very important. They were the leaders of all of them. Matter of fact, one um, one poet was pretty well equal to Moses. That was Homer. Uh, Homer was pretty well equal to Moses because what Homer said was truth, you know, and they appreciated because Homer, would, uh, he's the one that wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, and they, they believed what Homer said was the truth. So anyway, that's, that's a lot of stuff. There's obviously a whole lot more about this to be discussed, but there's no need to be more boring than I am already. We've, we've had, there's been plenty of influence that's come on as people have grown more and more into the culture. This is always a battle the church has to figure out. What, how much do we let the culture affect us and how much are we going to affect the culture? And there are times that we've lost the battle. We've ex- absorbed, I, I believe, over praise and worship. We've lost the battle on that one. I think we're turning our, our praise and worship services often more into more like concerts than they're, they're supposed to be. That's, that's a, a surrender to the culture, I think. If you want to do a concert, do a concert. But not, not a church service. 
doesn't have to be a concert. It's supposed to be something that is a joint worship service that we're having together. Well, anyway, uh, there, there are several things we did make surrenders to. Anybody got any questions or anything about what I've shared with you tonight? Well, thank you for chewing all of that. It's, um, you're, you're a great people to put up with that. From now on, we'll be looking at the different doctrines, the different practices that changed, how they changed, what caused the change, how we wound up with so many kinds of uh, divisions in the church, that sort of thing. Okay. All right. Let's close in prayer then, shall we? Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ. I know, Father, that the way Jesus formed that church, it cannot be the same thing we have in mind now. But I thank you that you are gracious with us and long-suffering with us, not willing that any should perish, and using the church even now to bring up people into the saving faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to have a good vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and bring that Holy Spirit revival to us that we need so desperately. We want to thank you for that even now. We do pray for our brothers and sisters. Pray for Wayne tonight, fathers. I know he's about to get started with the Wednesday night service. We ask in Jesus' name, you'll minister great grace and healing to him, great strength to him, to help him to speak the word of God and have a great prayer meeting tonight with his brothers and sisters. And I'm going to thank you for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen.